1: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Richard Candia Smith is a professor emeritus of history at the University of California. His book, Improvised Continent, Pan-Americanism, and Cultural Exchange, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, offers a richly detailed cultural history of Pan-Americanism, and how it was propagated among elites and popular audiences. Elihu Root, a major architect of U.S. international power, and a vision of liberal global governance, were the initial drivers of Pan-Americanism. Carrying the vision were civic leaders, philanthropists, artists, writers, and publishers, acting as cultural ambassadors with different political, cultural, and personal agendas, often at odds with official policy. In fostering a utopian vision of hemispheric solidarity, Both the U.S. and Latin American leaders faced overcoming preconceived ideas and misconceptions of the other. World War II and the Cold War increasingly turned a project of mutual cultural exchange into accelerated U.S. propaganda and political intervention in Latin America. U.S. domestic policies came under scrutiny as well. Smith has given us the complexities of cultural exchange in a time of developing U.S. power and the unforeseen consequences of Pan Americanism. Here is my conversation with Richard Candida Smith. Now,
2: let me introduce you to the author, Richard Candida Smith. Richard, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Lillian. Nice to uh, have a chance to chat with you about uh, my book.
2: Oh, well, you had produced a big book. It's chock full of stuff uh, about trans-American cultural exchange. It's full of interesting people and initiatives. Many of the people I recognized because I've studied this in, in graduate school. But first, tell, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Improvised Continent.
0: Well, it's been something I have been thinking about for a long time, uh, actually several decades. At uh, the end of the '70s, I was involved with an effort to put together a public television series that would uh, involve uh, prominent living Latin American authors to uh, uh, adapt some of their work and create, uh, uh, you know, uh, original dramas for U.S. television with some uh, contextualization before and after. Uh, and i got to meet uh, a number of important writers people whose work i had been reading for a long time it that didn't work out and it was probably a good thing it didn't work out i think my my whole perspective at that time was very naive but you know that's the way things work it was something though about the the cultural relationships between the united states and Latin America was something that was of deep personal interest to me. My family is from Mexico, so I had a, a sense of uh, both societies. Kind of, I was born here, but I had a sense of both societies from their different perspectives. Um, and uh, then I was invited uh, in uh, at the end in 2000, I think, to write an essay on border border. Uh, Culture, border art, uh, for an exhibition that was happening in Los Angeles and Tijuana on on contemporary art along the the border between the two Californias, and I wrote that um, essay which was called "Where Am I at Home?" Uh, question mark And uh, that got me thinking about the different experiences of artists and writers when they uh, inter, when they move across national boundaries. And I found I had a lot to say, so I started exploring the issue more. I did some classes at Berkeley on uh, comparative intellectual and cultural history of the Americas. I started teaching a class on the U.S. and Latin America, which was primarily the goal of it is different from differed from classes uh, in Latin American history was to try to understand more about the United States and how it had developed and how it had changed as a result of becoming a global power. Uh, So it was part of, I guess what I was doing was part of the the whole movement into rethinking the U.S. and the world and trying to understand in more detail what it means, uh, how the U.S. set up the kind of global system of global governance that it Uh, wanted, how its leaders set it up, and uh, what worked and what didn't work. And what, again, always coming back to, well, how did the United States change? Because generally speaking, in terms of the literature on cultural exchange, there's been some published, and uh, particularly with Latin America, and it always focuses on efforts to change public, U.S. efforts to change public opinion in other countries, Mexico, Brazil, you know, or outside, other parts of the world. And no one's really looked at what the effects were in, inside the United States. So that's where I started from. I thought it was well grounded in the archival record because it was clear from looking at uh, the archives of the Division of Cultural Affairs at the Department of State. The Carnegie Corporation and some of the other major players in establishing um, cultural ex- exchange. That I would, I think, it would. It's even conservative to say that 90% of their focus was on. Uh, <clears throat> Changing public opinion within the United States, so that uh, people would have a better understanding of their responsibilities as global citizens and thus be more likely to support a uh, an outgoing, shall we say, even interventionist foreign policy.
2: Now, you know from uh, your history, your study of history that the idea of this kind of hemispheric cooperation, goes all the way, you know, even as far as Thomas Jefferson, who thought of the Americas as this, this community of nations that were going to be an example for the world. It wasn't just the United States. It was the whole hemisphere. So can you, t- can you de- first, can you define Pan-Americanism for our audience and also uh, its origins? When was this term first
0: used? The term was first used at the uh, beginning of the 19th century. There's a, there's a preceding, uh, element. Uh, Philip Freneau and Hugh Breckenridge, when they were students at Princeton University for the graduation, uh, in 1771, wrote a poem called, an epic poem called The Rising Glory of America, in which they predicted that the, uh, European uh, powers would be ejected by, from the Western Hemisphere and that the various communities of of the Americas. English, French, Spanish, Portuguese would form some sort of cooperative commonwealth that would then uh, reach out to the Native American communities and also to, uh, because uh, Frenot was an abolitionist, also to freed black communities. So there was a uh, initial utopian idea of America as an quote-unquote empire of liberty, which is a term that's gotten a very sinister connotations but at at the beginning had perhaps had this liberal utopian idea of local self-governing local communities connected in a uh interlocking uh, set of exchanges. In the 1820s, as the Spanish uh, Revolutionary Armies defeated, I mean, or the the Revolutionary Armies in Spanish-speaking America defeated the uh, Spanish Armies, the idea of Pan-Americanism emerged uh, as a concept of federating the former Spanish colonies into what they called a Pan-American Commonwealth, From Simon Bolivar's point of view, this was to really be a way of creating a, a government for the former Spanish colonies that would be able to take its place on the world stage and uh, cooperate with uh, other countries and be able to defend uh, the newly independent uh, countries. Uh, there was a, uh, a counter-idea of Pan-Americanism, which was to include the United States, Haiti, and Brazil. At uh, any event, uh, the first Pan-American conference, which held, was held in Panama City in 1826, uh, collapsed in failure. There was no agreement uh, on anybody's part, uh, and uh, only a few nations sent delegate, uh, delegates to it. And then, as we know, the Spanish, the former Spanish colonies, uh, divided into twenty sovereign nations, united by language but divided by political and uh, competing political and economic interests.
2: Now, you, your story, for the most part, starts in the early twentieth century with, and one of the early people that you talk about is Eli Root, uh, Elihu Root. Um, what an unusual name! Uh, and his vision of an ideal for global governance and his Pan-American vision. Can you describe who was he and what was his vision?
0: Elihu Root is actually a very important person in the history of U.S. imperialism, if we want to use that term, or U.S. in the world. He was a Wall Street lawyer, uh, came originally from Vermont, made a bundle of money, and then became a leading figure in uh, the internationalist wing of the Republican Party. He was Secretary of War under William McKinley and Secretary of State under Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, The Pan American Union had been formed in its uh, initial form in 1890, uh, but had been a weak underfunded organization. Elihu Root came with a, a new idea that the Pan American Union could uh, really form a robust uh, uh, power block in the world uh, to counter European imperialism. He had a, an idea that the United States' natural allies as it became a world power were Latin America and East Asia. And uh, he advanced uh, a program for uh, the Pan American Union that many leaders, elites in Latin America found very, very attractive. And so the, uh, they agreed to this building up of the Pan American Union so that it became the foundation for um, uh, U.S. foreign policy. Um, in 19... 19- he has left uh, the executive branch and his good friend Andrew Carnegie invites him to be the founding president of the Carnegie Corporation, which is 19 separate uh, philanthropies. And using the money that he had from Carnegie, he began to develop a a program of cultural exchange, the idea of building an international public opinion that would... uh, uh If robust enough, would begin to force governments to uh, uh, think about uh, new forms of internet of how to work together uh and so again, his ideas of cultural exchange were focused on Latin America and East Asia, primarily because there was plenty of exchange with Europe, but nothing with these other countries and so he began developing uh programs. For educational exchange, uh, he, uh, the money that was invested led to Spanish being the most taught language in the United States. Um, and he began to fund, he or I should say the Carnegie Corporation began to fund translations, uh, both in journals and of books. And this, this, as often happens in the philanthropic world, Uh, when one one philanthropy gets involved and others start uh, coming in, so it became a, a much broader picture. But he had a very, I thought, a very clear and interesting vision in which idealism and the quest for power were inseparable, which I think is part of the story.
1: So part of it, also,
2: it sounds—it sounded to me like he was trying to create an international civil society.
0: Yes, he was. That's a good way of putting it, a very concise way of putting it. He He felt that there needed to be an international civil society. He talked in terms of voluntary associations spreading around the world, what we would now call non-government organizations or international non-government organizations. Essentially, what he did was he took, uh, as he imagined, a new world order emerging to replace uh, what he saw as a crisis-ridden and war-driven European system of power, that this would be, he was generalizing from uh, the most positive aspects of US experience. So he viewed um, a free press, voluntary associations, Excuse me, and an independent judiciary, so a world court that would be able to assess uh, and help negotiate conflicts and make some sort of legal determinations that there should be codified legal systems.
2: So basically, he was a liberal who who was trying to establish sort of a liberal world order with a global governance, not in the one world government, but he might have been accused of that. But in terms of nations cooperating with each other and being under some sort of universal global ethic of how societies and and states were to relate to each other.
0: All of this would be workable if it was an international public opinion that was robust and for him, that was where cultural exchange was the central thing that you build an international public opinion through having uh, professionals and scholars uh, intersect and be, uh, form friendships and begin to share ideas. And then also that the, the general citizenry of each country would begin to read and discuss uh, similar kinds of materials.
2: Now the uh, what was the view? The general view. I mean, the public of, about Latin America, and how did the Latin Americans view North America early in the twentieth century? What was the the view? The general view, the popular view of these, or was it?
0: Well, I think in both cases the popular view was negative uh, and filled rife with stereotypes. So, uh, North Americans viewed. Uh, Latin America as a place uh, in which there was no settled uh, civilized government, or very little. That the the very wealthy dominated and distorted everything. That working people did not have a chance, uh, and that uh, the government the governments were generally formed by dicta- were dictatorial, um, and that it was wild and savage. Um, Latin Americans viewed the United States uh, as a utilitarian commercial society that was interested in money, that there was no real culture in the United States. They were um, part of the uh, stereotype was a shock at uh, the loose women that existed. The United States had uh, uh, the very existence of feminism in the United States and the women's movement was an example that the family was decaying, and that uh, moral—you know—there was no moral center in the United States. So, part of the purpose of the cultural exchange was to break down the stereotypes by getting face-to-face contact, which happened through endless conferences dealing with every kind of topic, and then to, uh, to have people begin to read the most important uh, authors and authorities in each uh, each country.
2: Now, the thing about that the stereotype, it wasn't just there was a popular view. Uh, there were some e- elite literary people who had actually uh, disseminated that view, the view of... So it, the people were getting it from some elite intellectual, cultural elites who were writing and uh, would characterize each of these uh, areas of the hemisphere
0: in certain ways. I think it would be, I, I, the only way I would modify that is to think, uh, it's, it's the Achilles heel of uh, Pan-Americanism, is that one has to think of this as a middle-class phenomenon, that even the idea of the citizenry and uh, the people who are going to be interacting are middle-class, uh, educated, property-owning, not necessarily super elite, but nonetheless, uh, the the kind of um, middle-class minorities in all the countries that uh, had the time and the background to be able to dedicate themselves to public affairs. Uh, As the general public, as the people get involved things become more complicated obviously and uh the the idea of international governments that's democratic if we view democracy as really government of the people by the people and for the people uh was something that the kinds of elites in all the american countries and i dare say in the transatlantic countries were not really comfortable dealing with that this was to be a phenomenon of educated property owning people
2: right so the 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 middle classes uh in latin americans you know the the uh, literary intellectuals were had a lot of uh not just literary artistic clout but they also had some uh, quite a bit of uh, political clout in latin america
0: yeah where they were often yeah. yeah and they were also often the uh, uh that the position that you would hold in society would be uh, as a diplomat or as a uh, the leader of an important ins- uh, government institution so the, the the uh it's not that intellectuals were unanimous on everything but they did they operated within smaller more personalized uh uh, situations where their debates often then led to uh, new public policies
2: now, another person that another person that's kind of central to your book which, that you continually shows up in the book is rico um, Rico Verissimo, <laughs> yeah, but okay. Tell us about him and tell him tell us uh, who is he? And he was he was really very active in this Pan-American uh, um, po- uh, exchange in many different ways. Talk about him.
0: Érico Veríssimo is a Brazilian novelist, um, a very important Brazilian novelist, uh, who is still today considered one of the great classics of Portuguese language literature and he had an, an important influence on uh spanish uh speaking american literature as well he was born in 1905 in the far south of brazil in uh, uh what is basically cowboy country or gaucho country and uh he came from a tr- what was called a traditional landowning family though his family lost all of its money so he's pulled out of school Uh, before he could graduate and he had to go to work and but he had good language skills and he went to basically uh, wound up working for a publisher uh, and he was in charge of selecting books to be translated and then translating most of them or uh, finding a translator. So he translated uh, the most popular books from the United States, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, the Spanish speaking countries into Portuguese and became quite familiar with the conventions of uh, global middle class literature in the interwar period. Uh, The publishing in Brazil was still at this time quite small. He but he in 1937, he published a novel that was the first bestseller in Brazil it sold something like 30,000 copies which in the united states would not be a bestseller but in brazil uh, was enormous uh compared to uh previous book sales uh he was he became a, he he was publishing basically a book a year uh partly because that's how he he needed to sell books in order to support himself and his family and um The State Department took notice of him and thought that he had a style and an approach that would be congenial with American readers. So in 1940, they brought him to the United States to... um, meet people he spent three months traveling around the united states he was introduced to publishers he was introduced to hollywood producers he gave uh several dozen lectures and then he went back to brazil and wrote a book about his uh time in the united states called black translates into english as black cat on a field of snow um and it's a delightful book it's actually one of the more interesting travel travel books i've read and he's trying to explain to Brazilians why he thought the United States uh, would not negotiate with Hitler and was prepared to uh, lead uh, a global coalition against fascism. The State Department, the book, that book also did very well. The State Department then invited him to teach at Berkeley and to give public lectures. And uh, so he became a uh, a spokesperson for the good neighbor th- um, policy in the United States. He had uh, His first novel uh, was translated in English in 1943, uh, called Crossroads, about urban life, contemporary urban life in uh, the city where he lived, Porto Alegre in the far south. And it was the first uh, la- book by a Latin American author to become a commercial success in the United States. And he had uh, eight more books published over the in English over the next 20 years. And really, uh, his American public uh, connections with the American publisher's publisher was Macmillan, which was one of the largest in, in the country, indeed, in the world, was very important for him. That's uh, because they handled his international sales. Uh, I focused on him uh, because he was an exemplary character that allowed me to trace how Latin Americans of a liberal bent responded to the United States over time. So in the 1940s, uh, he's a spokesperson for the Good Neighbor Policy. In the 1950s, he's becoming uncomfortable with the Cold War policies of the United States, but he believes in the internationalist mission, and he becomes Director of Cultural Affairs for the Pan-American Union. For, for three years and comes back to live in the United States. But he ends that uh, process uh, very deeply skeptical, skeptical of the United States' ability to build a just and peaceful world. And his last three novels, um, trace, um, the difficulties of the of the militarized world that the united states brought into being after 1945 uh the first uh, of these last novels one deals with the impact of the cuban revolution in latin america the second uh which was published in 1967, a set in Vietnam with all the characters are either American or Vietnamese. And uh, the focus of the central characters are American soldiers in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, his final novel was about uh, the role of the use of torture as an instrument of state policy during the Brazilian military dictatorship. Uh, he was able to publish that. Uh, because he and another famous Brazilian author, senior Brazilian author, Jorge Amado, were exempt from the censorship laws uh, because they were national treasures, as it were. Uh, And so he, uh, by publishing that novel, was able to force a discussion of the the role of torture in in, uh, perpetuating the political and uh, economic inequality uh, that structured life in brazil those last two novels were about vietnam and about torture in a military dictatorship that the united states uh, helped put into power were never translated into english so that raised a historical puzzle to me how was someone who was for 20 years probably the best known latin american novelist in the united states how did he get why did he get pushed out at the time he got pushed out and why why is he totally forgotten uh, at this point? And so much of the book, uh, or at least the second half of the book, is uh, tracing uh, his career in the United States to answer, you know, why do we pick, a, why do we absorb certain authors at certain times and then uh, what happens to them as uh our own political and economic life changes initially i thought it was political reasons it was a form of censorship and of course in some degree it was but as i dug into it and went through the archives it became clear that uh the basic issue was the reorganization of publishing that took place in the United States that took place in the 1960s and 70s uh, as American publishing companies were bought up by uh, multinational corporations and the the number of books uh, and the kinds of books published changed and many older authors were dropped at this time. And because he, even though uh, There's a funny contradiction with uh, Verissimo because he was both a critic of US imperialism but also an anti communist. And that made uh, him a difficult person to place within the US body politic.
2: Okay, let me let me let's go on. Uh, The literary uh, exchange was uh, very important and it's and uh, most of it went from it seemed like it went from Latin America to the United States because of publishing the way publishing worked and also the role of translation in this. But, and and so, uh, and also the literacy rates. Uh, In Latin America, there wasn't that large of a uh, literary market because there were so many people that couldn't afford books or didn't read. And so that limited the markets for American uh, books to be translated into into Spanish or Portuguese?
0: It was very difficult for um, Latin American publishers to um, survive. Most of them, uh, the the bigger publishers, uh, required some form of government subsidy. So the uh, Fondo de Cultura Economica in Mexico, which for many years was the largest publisher in Latin America, had a base income from the Mexican government uh, for it to publish uh, college and high school textbooks as well as technical magazines. The publisher uh, kept on pleading, uh, the lead editor, uh, kept on pleading with the Mexican government that they help him translate some American bestsellers because he thought that would uh, increase uh, the demand for Mexican fiction. Um, And uh, for a variety of logical reasons, the Mexican government didn't feel they should do that. Uh, And even though American publishers were willing to uh, give the rights for basically a token fee, the costs of putting out a translated book were uh, very expensive for a small publisher. And it might take four to five years for a book to, uh, even a successful book, to earn back its income. There were similar things going on in Brazil. Uh,
2: so there, that's that's one issue that kind of makes the exchange unequal. The other thing too I want to talk about is visual arts. Um, there was a, there were some several. Um, uh, exhibits here in the United States of uh, Latin American artists. Can you talk about the, that experience? of What happened there?
0: Well, the first uh, cultural figures from Latin America who got publicity in the United States who became public figures in the United States were the Mexican muralists. So at the end of the 1920s, a uh, number of uh, curators at uh, in institutions around the United States curated exhibits of contemporary Mexican art, which did ver- had very large attendance, actually comparable to the attendance to European uh, modern art. And the, the, the Mexican muralism uh, was so popular that uh, Mexican muralists people uh, were invited to the United States. It's not just the three greats of Diego Rivera, uh, David Alfaro, Siqueiros, and Jose Clemente Orozco. There were literally dozens of uh, Mexican artists who were invited to the United States to uh, do commissions in virtually every part of of the country. But obviously it was Diego Rivera uh, uh, was the main figure, and he he was a good showman, and he could capture public attention. Um, there was attention uh, uh, in both his case and with Siqueiros between the the uh, their social vision of what art could do and the commercial purposes to which art was being deployed in in the United States. So in both cases, there were important murals that uh, Rivera and Siqueiros had um, uh, had uh, created uh, in New York and Los Angeles, respectively, that were destroyed by the uh, sponsors. Uh, that's, those stories have been told many times, but I wanted to look at that in sort of a larger picture of how what happened to artists, art, Mexican art, Latin American art did not go away, but it, it moved out of the public sphere into the museum gallery, uh, where, uh, it, uh, where the politics could be contained and within a modernist aesthetics uh, but as we know that for many years, Ribera and Siqueiros and Orozco were uh, probably the most known artists in the United States. I also talk about a Brazilian artist, Kanjida Portinari, who had a stellar reception in the United States at the end of the 1930s. Uh, and again, was invited to do public murals, in this case, at the Library of Congress. And what's interesting to me about what happened with the muralists, both the Mexican and the Brazilian, is the way in which Rivera was embraced uh, for his celebration of industry, modern industry, and Porcinari's murals Became, were even though they're about Brazil, the settlement, uh, the invasion and settlement of Brazil by the Portuguese, uh, his murals were embraced uh, in the war effort as a symbol of American patriotism, uh, thought on a continental level. After the war, things change.
2: Yeah, this is what this is what's interesting to me about these murals. They were very political, and in a way, uh, they were sort of quaint. What I mean by that is the depiction of, uh, of Native people and local people in a particular way. You know, it's sort of, I don't know, kind of charming. But once the Latin Americans later on, others came along and moved away from that, it became doing a much more abstract art, uh, more abstraction. Uh, that's when the Latin American art sort of people lost interest. They wanted that muralist sort of
0: world. They wanted the muralist world, but also the art world in the United States changed. They were no longer interested in this kind of uh, Pan-American modernism that was a counter-modernism to what was being produced in Europe. There was a new story being told after, uh, the, after 1945, which was New York is the center of, of the art world the new capital of the art world. And uh, and so, of course, this is the story of abstract expressionism within this, the Chilean artist uh, Roberto Matà uh, uh, becomes the most widely exhibited Latin American artist, but it's really sort of incidental that he's Chilean. The important thing is that he left Chile to go to Paris and then he came to New York and he was in New York for a critical decade from 37 to 48. And that's where his uh, specific vision created so he could be paired against Jackson Pollock as as, uh, a validation of this uh, new American nationalism, US nationalism that art was exhibiting, uh, was illustrating. Uh, Rufino Tamayo, the uh, Mexican surrealist painter, also becomes more uh, better known I get um, in the, the post-war period. But there's always this the continuing exhibition. And Latin America had lots of abstraction, but uh, it was autonomous or uh, abstraction was an international movement. And if you want to tell, tell it as a specifically America, U.S. story, then uh, you you ignore a lot of what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, so it wasn't simply Latin Americans who were ignored. It was also French and Italian abstractionists, uh, Japanese abstractionists, Canadian abstractionists. So you, you focused on um, what, what U.S. artists had, had produced in the United or if you were a foreign artist, you had to come to the United States uh, to be recognized there were continuing shows of Latin American art, but they were always segregated. So you had a kind in the post-war period of conception of Latin American culture as being uh, uh, something apart. It was in effect ghettoized. The Latin American artists themselves were always complaining, "Why, why don't you just mainstream us into the shows if you're going to have a?" a show on geometric abstraction or biomorphic abs- abstraction. We've all been doing that. Just show us along with everybody else.
2: Yeah, this is what I'm saying, that there, there was a sort of a, almost stereotype about what, what kind of art came from Latin America. So let me, let me ask you another question here. Um, now, all these Latin American artists and writers who are trying to address an Ameri- a North American audience, a U.S. audience, they, they, had, they, were, they had ideological differences. They were not all the same. I mean, they didn't all ble- and 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 how did they navigate those differences among themselves?
0: Well, that changes uh, uh, over time, and it uh, has a lot to do with the the of the Cold War spreading into the Americas, and particularly the Cuban Revolution, and how after the Cuban Revo- the success of the Cuban Revolution, which pretty much everybody supported. Uh, it becomes more. Both the United States and the Cuban, shall we say, uh, are drawing a line, which makes it more difficult to not take one side or the other. If you're for the Cuba, you're against the United States. If you're uh, if you're critical of Cuba, you're for the United States, even if you might also be uh, critical of the United States. So that that kind of uh, mushy in-between space. Was being uh, eliminated Uh, inside the United States. There was a lot of debate over U.S. policy, and I think uh, particularly what happens in the '60s is there's a tendency to uh, to focus on uh, the revolutionary and radical and ignore the fact that there were strong Catholic movements in all of these countries with different theological and political perspectives, there were liberal uh, uh, movements, and there were still uh, the vestiges of, um, you know, of the, uh, the leanings towards fascism that had existed in the 1930s. And so Latin America, strangely enough, the more that gets translated, the more opaque and mystified it be- what's happening becomes within the United States, because if you go by what's being translated, uh, everything's on the verge of revolution, uh, which was not really the case. So uh, uh, the question I ask, um, and I have some answers, but it's uh, uh, ultimately it's, it's just something that we have to uh, recognize as a historical fact is that there was a simple a simplification uh that cultural exchange led to a simplification of the image presented rather than a complexification that it led to less understanding uh rather than greater understanding of the complexities and difficulties in the situation uh so that ultimately, public opinion uh, seems to me became increasingly irrelevant for how the government handled its, uh, its foreign affairs.
2: So, it, but, but basically, it's almost like a devolved propaganda. Yes. Okay. So let me ask you another question about as, as the uh, more and more is being written in Latin America that sort of reflects on the United States in some way. Uh, there's increased scrutiny of U.S. domestic policies. And that's one of the arguments that you make, that this exchange actually brought uh, the United States under examination.
0: Well, uh, in two ways in particular. One is race relations. Um, So uh, there is one of the simplifications that occurred in the United States, and this occurs actually at the uh, beginning of uh, the 1940s is the concept of racial of brazil in particular being a quote unquote racial democracy and latin america in general being a colorblind uh, set of societies uh, and this is uh, in both cases is a a, a gross oversimplification but it served the interests of civil rights activists within the united states who thus were able to argue see we have evidence that race is is a historical category. It can be if you have certain kinds of laws, you can downplay its importance and uh, create a society in which uh, equality of opportunity is uh, more evenly distributed. Uh, And so Latin America, as uh, became within the United States, a symbol of an alternative to the system of racial segregation and racial conflict that characterized the United States. This was uh, necessary if the United States was going to be leading a global coalition uh, fighting racism, Uh, but at the same time very difficult politically because the the, – Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration required the support of Southern Democrats for both domestic and international um, um, initiatives. Uh, And ultimately, it was the racial politics that led Congress to revolt against the whole program of cultural exchange and to uh, uh, beginning in 1944 to try to shut it down and to uh, transform cultural exchange into a a set of policies in which the United States tells everybody about how much we know and how good we are. And uh, American citizens will learn about the world uh, as uh, American publishers or Hollywood movie producers uh, choose to tell them. The other issue, yeah, sorry.
2: So, like I said, that's the whole the whole thing of it evolves it evolves into sort of uh, propaganda. If the United States is not going to be represented in certain ways, um, it's not in the best interest of the United States politically to uh, underwrite this cultural exchange. Now, I want to ask you. I wanted to ask you about as the the uh, the positive values that were associated with the United States. You know, equality and prosperity, and uh, you know, industry. Uh, Those could also be industry and the pragmatism of the American machine, commercial machine, could also be viewed positively as a way to increase uh, economic wealth among the population. You know, we had a large middle class, so that was seen as, you know, look what they've done. They've been able to lift so many people into the middle class, which was something that many Latin Americans wanted for themselves also. But that gets tangled up with. A ne- an increasingly negative view of Americans' foreign policy it does, also. Uh,
0: so, th- it's a complicated issue. Because-
2: and even today, it, yeah, it is. It, what I was going to say was, uh, even today, if you go to Latin America, you get a very sort of um, uh, mixed uh, review of the United States, just ordinary people. In one way, they tell you they really admire the American people because they're so industrious and look at the wealth they've been able to build. But at the same time, there's kind of a loathing of it's assertion of power, foreign power, you know, it's power over the world. So the Latin Americans even today feel very uh, ordinary people, very ambivalent towards the United States.
0: Yeah, I think most, uh, probably most people around the world feel ambivalent about the United States. It's an unstable country. uh, And yet everyone has to live with the, uh, with the boomerang effects of uh, its own internal dissension and its uh, the difficulties that the united states has in in governing itself uh my personal experience has been that uh, almost everybody i would I would talk to uh, almost from sentence to sentence the emotional valence would shift from positive to negative back to positive and uh so it's a, a, a very um it's a very uh troubling uh, the relationship with the united states i think is very uh individually troubling and we can see this and uh, i i begin uh, you know at the beginning of the book i look a little bit at ruben Darío, the very very famous spanish poet who wrote whose most famous poem in the united states is uh, to roosevelt which is an uh, attack on the uh on Roosevelt for, as the, the great hunter who plans to invade Latin America. But he also wrote other poems that were more positive about the United States and or at least expressed uh, this prayer that the great power and wealth of the United States was somehow or other going to be uh, by divine grace directed to uh, the collective good of humanity. And I think that kind of attitude is still, somehow or other, the United States has so much power if it just, put, when it puts its power in positive directions, it benefits everybody. But so often uh, the power is directed to harm. And many of the characters that I deal with are struggling with that contradiction. And there's no way of getting around it because it's at the core of US domestic politics, I think. it's. Uh,
2: so I wanted to ask you uh, one of the last thing I want to talk about. But I don't want us to get away without talking about the 1960s literary boom in Latin America and the great the new Latin American novel and uh, how it exploded uh, basically on the international scene. Uh, can you talk about how these novels were different from what had been written before and what were the, what, was the, what these writers have in common?
0: Well, the first thing that I mean, they're they're. The previous, the previous tradition in Latin America had been uh, what we might call an English local color, so uh, reconstructions of uh, of, kind of the folkloric and uh, the historical roots uh, of, of these various countries. So there was also a, what I would call a social realist tradition, which Adico Verissimo fits in. But um, in the 1960s, it really begins in the 1940s and 50s, there's a group of writers who who view themselves not a... They're taking the Latin American experience to think about the human condition broadly. They're they're thinking about uh, myth. They're applying myth and folklore uh, to create alternative... Uh, worlds in their books so they're they're fighting for the autonomy of literature as a practice which allows you to see reality in a in a different kind of way through the power of of the imagination and that it the, this kind of imaginative reconstruction of the world in in novels would promote critical thinking uh that would give a new vision of history as in uh, Alejo Carpentier's seminal book, uh, Los Pasos Perdidos, The Lost Steps, uh, which came out in 1953, which literally takes takes the hero uh, through the five stages backwards through the history of the Americas from modern urbane life back to the Stone Age. and it's, but, and it's also a strong defense of the, of the, of this, of the cultural autonomy of the peoples of Latin America and their ability to, uh, if they could get political and economic independ- independence to create a new modern culture, uh, that would not be derivative from either Europe or North America. Uh, this all gets caught up in the Cold War and the, the the there's a disagreement uh, within uh, amongst american elites the foreign you could even say the foreign policy uh, sector about us policy and so philanthropies in the mid 60s uh, get back involved in a in a major way uh started with the funding this time initially coming from the rockefeller family through several of their different foundations to increase uh awareness of contemporary latin american literature to uh, to not do this for the purposes of goodwill but to show that this, this was uh, contemporary world literature and needed to be treated in the same way as important North American and European books. And they were very successful in this. In the process, they create a, they support this goal of cultural autonomy and they create a, they show that within the United States for Latin American intellectuals, even though you loathe the policies there is a space for critical thought. There's a space for the autonomy of culture that allows one to really think through problems and make an independent contribution. At the same time, the Cuba, Cuban revolution is under attack and it is, uh, it is insisting on, uh, It is restricting freedom of speech and freedom of thought in uh, in imprisoning authors. And the end result for both artists and writers is uh, continued criticism of United States policy, but a greater uh, practical appreciation of the liberal culture that the United States uh, enjoys in in its domestic life.
2: Okay. Now, let me... uh... Uh, kind of trying to wrap this up here your your book is really big it's got lots of people lots of interesting tidbits and uh, and many it's really interesting book it's uh i really liked it it's you put a lot of work into it um what is your what do you think the takeaway for this book is and in terms of how people are going to view uh how we're going to view the 20th century and pan-americanism
0: I suppose when I was writing it, I kept thinking about we have Pan Americanism as a stepping stone to globalization. If we want to use the buzzwords, that even for both the Latin Americans and the uh, leaders in the U.S., it, the end point was uh, a global governance, something like the United Nations, and a and a uni- and a world uh, uh, cultural market. And I think looking at Pan Americanism. Allows us to think about what's not what's goofy about today's uh, the contemporary situation where the United States is the center of a global culture, and yet Americans still know uh, very little about uh, the world that their co- that their leaders uh, also govern. Um, you know, one of the things that's striking to me when I'm in another country, whether it's Latin America or Europe, or uh, when I was in Japan, is how much more uh, appears on their on their television from uh, all over the place, uh, so that there is a more uh, on a daily basis a greater understanding of the world as a more complex. Uh, place with a lot of different points of view, much more so than we have in the United States, have had in the United States. Maybe with streaming, things temporarily are changing, but maybe they'll also go back as they get streaming services get centralized, we go back to uh, a more controlled and curated uh, vision of the world that doesn't serve our interests as uh, for either democratic oversight of foreign affairs, uh, or uh, the place that uh, the society uh, has uh, in the the world. So to me, I'm not trying to resurrect the ideal of Pan-Americanism as something um, that was wonderful, but as a series of missed opportunities that prefigure the opportunities that we're actually probably missing in today in today's contemporary situation. And that if we can think through that experience, maybe we can start thinking about what's this, what's, what do the people in the United States need in order to be better global citizens?
2: That was good, uh, because I think that's exactly the point of your book. I mean, uh, if, if you watch our, our network television, you know that the news is mostly domestic news. We don't get the even the international news on television that we used to get. Yes. Okay. So, Richard, thank you. You've been very generous with your time. Well, thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This has been a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.